0: I was terrified. I got nervous every time the phone rang. I would lay awake at night thinking, oh, my God, the evangelicals are coming for me. Jesus is coming for me.
1: Unprecedented is a show about what we call the accidental guardians of our freedoms, the regular people who helped us figure out what the First Amendment actually means. And no one embodies this idea more than the guy we'll hear from today.
2: This week on the show, the dirty joke that made it to the Supreme Court. Maybe you've heard about Hustler v. Falwell. It's a case so salacious that Hollywood made it into a movie, The People versus Larry Flint.
3: Mr. Flint, is that an American flag you have on there, sir? I have fashioned this American flag into a diaper because if you're gonna treat me like a baby, I'm gonna act like one.
2: But the movie left out arguably the
0: most important person. This is Terry Abramson. I am being interviewed today, I believe.
1: Yeah, there's no Terry Abramson in the movie. And that's bizarre
2: because Terry is responsible for Hustler v. Falwell. Without him,
1: there's no case. And the Supreme Court might never have weighed in on whether the Constitution protects our right to be mean. Terry's role has been lost to history, until now.
2: I'm Mike Volo. I'm
1: Matthew Schwartz.
2: And this is Unprecedented. Who is Terry Abramson? He's a writer. He started out in the advertising business in Chicago
0: in the 1970s. I wrote Charlie the Tuna and Morris the Cat and. Wow.
1: Charlie the Tuna. He was that anthropomorphic fish with a top hat, right?
2: No, he he didn't have a top hat. He had a beret. (laughs) Oh. He was a beatnik.
0: Come and get your gift star, kid.
1: Sorry, Charlie. I was three. I didn't pay much attention.
2: Well, that's when this story begins. In the spring of 1983,
0: Terry Abramson gets a phone call from an old colleague. He called me up and said, Flint is looking for some uh, humor for Hustler. you have any ideas? And I kind of knew... The reputation of Hustler, I never met anybody who actually had one in their home. I just thought that was the kind of thing that people went into the uh, newsstands and looked at and then put back and left. But I looked through it and then I thought, well, I wrote commercials. I'll do some ad parodies.
2: Ad parodies. Okay, but Terry wants to do a little bit of research first. So he goes back to the newsstand and thumbs through an issue of Playboy.
0: And I came across an ad. It was a Campari ad.
2: The ad that Terry came across is in this issue of Playboy from 1983.
1: Whoa! Porn in the studio. Vintage porn.
2: It's, it's for research purposes.
1: Matt, turn to page 50. Um, okay. Let's see here. Page 50. There it is. Campari. It's a red liqueur. That's basically all I know about it. Never, never had it.
2: Well, in the early 1980s, Kapari ran a series of print ads. They were full-page magazine advertisements that read like an interview, a Q&A, with a famous actress talking about her
0: first time. And, you know, from the headline and from what you started to read, which was, my toes curled, I saw skyrockets, They're supposed to make you think that she's talking about the first time she had sex.
1: So, yeah, uh, this particular one that Terry came across has an actress holding up a cocktail. Her name is Jill St. John.
2: Yeah, she played the Bond girl in Diamonds Are Forever.
4: Help yourself to a drink. Is
2: uh, Mr.
1: Case not at home?
4: There is no Mr. Case. The tea is for Tiffany.
2: Now, I want to read part of this Jill St. John ad because, remember, this is the inspiration for the parody ad that Terry's going to write. So I'll play the part of the interviewer, and playing the part of Ms. Jill St. John will be Ms. Jill St. John.
1: What? <laughs> Wait, you got, you got Jill St. John? Mike? Yes. We are
2: here. Great. Jill just arrived. Hi. Oh. Hi there.
1: You just called up a Bond girl? Yeah. I don't know what it has to do with the First Amendment, but... Where can I find the numbers for Bond girls?
4: Hi, I'm Jill St. John, and I'm talking about my first time. My first time was in Tre Scalini, an adorable sidewalk cafe in Rome.
2: Oh, really? Right out in the open?
4: Sure. You see, I'm basically an outdoorsy type of person.
2: I see. You must tell me all about it.
4: Well, we were just relaxing after a hard day of shooting, just me and the crew, It happened with the stuntman.
2: The stuntman? That sounds a bit risky. No,
4: it wasn't really. You see, he was Italian, and they just seemed to know about these things.
2: Go on. Well,
4: he was very romantic. He leaned in close and whispered, Gingerly? Well, I said, I've never been shy about anything before. He gave me a charming grin and then ordered a gingerly for me. That's Campari, ginger ale and soda.
2: And it goes on from there.
1: I'm still shocked that you got Jill St. John. You were good too. Oh, thank you. I
4: think we got it, huh?
1: I think so. She acts with Sean Connery, not Mike Volo. Well, times
2: change, my
1: friend. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: That's awful. All right, so this whole ad is just one big bait and switch. It's Yeah. It's a double entendre. Yeah. Yeah, you think she's talking about sex, but it turns out she's actually talking about this Italian liqueur. Kind of
2: cute. Terry Abramson thought so, too. So he grabbed his notepad and headed over to his favorite spot for some inspiration.
0: I would go out to Venice Beach to write. A lot going on there, a lot of characters, a lot of life, a lot of music. And... You know, there was an unlimited and relentless sensorial bombardment of tie-dye everything and the scent of marijuana and incense. I felt like things were flowing out of me as they should be. It was a good environment for me to get creative. And I could see the ocean and I could see the people. And I thought about it for not very long, maybe 90 seconds, and I just wrote. Jerry Falwell talks about his first time.
1: Why Jerry Falwell?
0: In order to understand
2: why Jerry Falwell, it's important to remember just how towering and influential a person he was in the early 1980s.
5: I'm Jerry Falwell, pastor here. Isn't it grand to be a Christian?
6: Jerry Falwell was a fundamentalist, Christian activist. This is Rodney Smola. He's dean of the law school
2: at the University of Delaware. And he's the author of Jerry Falwell versus Larry
6: Flint, the First Amendment on trial. He had a popular Sunday gospel big church program.
7: It's time now for the old time gospel hour with Jerry Falwell.
6: And it's a
5: real joy every Sunday morning to share with you our morning worship service.
6: He thought it important to enter the political arena and fight everything that he thought was going wrong with America. Moral relativism. Today
5: there seems to be very little recognition of what is right and what is wrong.
6: Sexual promiscuity.
5: When you look at herpes, God's judgment because of heterosexual promiscuity.
6: Homosexuality.
5: The man who gives himself to this kind of perversion is sick, S-I-C-K. The Supreme
3: and Court taught... today legalized
5: abortions.
6: abortion. So abortion.
5: What is God going to do to judge America because of 13 million little babies we've murdered since 1973?
6: He formed a side business, so to speak, a political arm of the church that was called the Moral, the moral majority. majority.
0: A new political machine that's anti-abortion, anti-ERA, anti-gay rights. There's
6: a thing called truth. It comes from the Gospel, it comes from God, and the country has gone awry in not recognizing that.
5: And what God said was wrong a hundred years ago is wrong today. God has not changed.
6: And I will preach these lessons, and I will back candidates that endorse these lessons, and I will with no shame enter the arena. And so he did.
2: It's. Against this backdrop that Terry Abramson, who's a a political progressive, a liberal, decided that Falwell
0: was the perfect target for his parody. He had this agenda that that he talked about, Falwell, of uh, wanting to get people saved. And I'm thinking, yeah, uh, Falwell's kind of a a guy we should be saved from, not uh, a guy who should be saving, at least not saving me.
2: So the assignment was not to write an ad parody lampooning Jerry Falwell.
0: You chose him as the target. All I was told was Flint wants humor. That was as specific as it got. So I thought, well, how can I do something that will get a chuckle out of the folks who read Hustler and let Jerry Falwell know that not everybody thinks he is this guy who you can't mess with?
1: So, Terry Abramson wrote one of those sexy double entendre ads
0: about Jerry Falwell? Sort of. Here's Terry. This is how the original uh, ad started. I never dreamed I'd make it with Grandma, but when those six guys came out of the outhouse smiling and Grandma was still breathing, I figured, shit, if the flies can take it, well, so can I.
2: Not quite a double entendre.
1: It's it's more like a single entendre. A single disgusting <laughs> entendre. <laughs> Too
2: disgusting for Larry Flynn? Maybe. Terry gets summoned to the Hustler building in L.A. Larry Flynn's assistant says that Larry has a problem with the parody. And I'm
0: just crushed. And she says, Larry likes the ad, but Larry was very close with his grandmother And he can't imagine or stomach anyone, even Jerry Falwell, having sex with his own grandmother. Can you change it to Falwell having sex with his mother? I thought, there's 250 bucks on the line, I'll change it to anything they want. And I basically just changed the wording from You know, grandmother to mother, wherever it was needed, and that was good enough for them. And so the parody
2: was published in the November 1983 issue of Hustler. You have it? Thank you, eBay. Check out the inside front cover.
1: This looks exactly like the Jill St. John ad. It even has a picture of Jerry Falwell smoldering at the camera. Yeah, that's the point. It's
2: a parody. Now, we can reenact this like I did with with Jill St. John, only Jerry Falwell is no longer with us. And, you know, let's face it, he probably wouldn't participate if he were. (laughs) Probably not. So I'll be the interviewer again and...
1: I'll be Jerry Falwell? That's what I'm thinking. All right. I'm, I'm excited.
2: Here it is, Jerry Falwell talks about his first time.
1: My first time was in an outhouse outside Lynchburg, Virginia.
2: Wasn't it a little cramped?
1: Not after I kicked the goat out.
2: I I see. You must tell me all about it.
1: Ah, I never really expected to make it with Mom, but then, after she showed all the other guys in town such a good time, I figured, what the hell? But your mom? Isn't that a bit odd? I don't think so. Looks don't mean that much to me and a woman. Go on. Well, we were drunk off our God-fearing asses on Campari, ginger ale, and soda. It's called a fire and brimstone. Mm. And mom looked better than a Baptist whore with a hundred dollar donation.
2: Campari and the crapper with mom. How interesting.
1: Well, how was it? The Campari was great, but This is your line, Matt. I can't, I can't read this. You wanted to play Jerry Falwell. I'm not going to read this. But my mother is going to listen to this episode. <laughs> no way.
2: I, I don't blame you. I'm not going to read it either.
1: I feel dirty. So, so the,
2: <laughs> This was actually in the magazine, and we we left out the, the most vulgar part. Google it if you want to. I should mention that there is a little asterisk at the bottom of the page, next to which it says ad parody not to be taken seriously.
1: Well, at least there's that, but this is a really mean parody.
2: Falwell certainly thought so, and he took it very seriously. Here's Falwell back in the 1980s. He's at a press conference talking about the ad.
5: I have never been incensed by a political cartoonist or any other kind of cartoonist other than Mr. Flint. When he suggested that as a minister of the gospel that i had been involved incestuously with my late mother who died at age 82 some years earlier a godly woman whose memory has never been blemished by anyone and when he suggested that uh, that uh, that my mother was a whore a prostitute i can't imagine any red-blooded male in any nation on earth, not being incensed by that.
2: Soon after the parody comes out, Terry hears
0: from his contact at Hustler again. And he says, listen, uh, has anybody called you or written to you about this Falwell parody we did? And I say, no, why? And all of a sudden, you know, my stomach is starting to churn. And he says, well, Falwell is suing Flint. And then I'm like, oh, my God, the evangelicals are coming for me. Jesus is coming for me. It was horrifying. I would lay awake at night, sometimes in bed, thinking, am I going to you know, get sued? Am I going to go to jail? It's Jerry Falwell. He's got plenty of dough. At
1: this point, were you thinking at all about the protections that the First Amendment supposedly afforded you, or were you just freaking out?
0: I was mostly freaking out.
2: Jesus was not coming for Terry Abramson. Nobody was coming for Terry Abramson, the writer. Jerry Falwell was, however, coming for Larry Flint, the king of porn. Falwell had been preaching against pornography for years, Falwell was coming for Hustler.
5: Question, isn't pornography protected by the First Amendment? Don't you think Hugh Hefner, Larry Flint, and a host of other smut peddlers have the right to publish their garbage with protection under the First Amendment? No. N-O. No. I don't believe the founding fathers had garbage in mind when they wrote the First Amendment. That's not censorship. That's Christian responsibility.
2: Falwell sued Hustler for what's called intentional infliction of emotional distress.
1: Which is really just a legal way of saying Falwell is suing Hustler for hurting his feelings.
3: And in a courtroom in Roanoke, Virginia, this week, there is a confrontation of opposites. The Reverend Jerry Falwell of the moral majority takes on Larry Flint, a man who calls himself the King of Sleaze.
2: This was a jury trial, and the jury found for Jerry Falwell. They decided that Larry Flint owed Falwell $200,000 in damages for intentional infliction of emotional distress.
1: $200,000
2: For being mean. Yeah, yeah, and to be fair, we've been framing this case as the right to be mean, but for Terry Abramson, this wasn't just about a vulgar parody of a public figure. Free
0: speech itself was on the line. How can you censor someone? How can you arbitrarily decide to take a man or a woman's voice? When you take their voice, when you refuse them the opportunity to vent their soul, you are denying their existence. You deny people's humanity when you deny their right to speak their mind.
1: Will the Supreme Court deny Terry Abramson's existence, as he put it, or does he have the right to be mean? We'll find out after the break.
2: Stick around.
4: Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jodi Pico and Jennifer Penny Boylan followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at slash book club.
2: Nina Totenberg. Yes. This may seem like a bit of an indelicate question, but can you tell us about your first time?
8: I've been doing this for so many years. I really don't remember the first time. Because I didn't think it would be on and off for the rest of my life. And so I just know the year, and I'm not telling it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Do Do you remember who it was with, who was there?
8: I went to the press room. You did this in the press room? I did
1: this in the press room. Okay, so the details are a little hazy. Nina doesn't quite remember Her first time covering the Supreme Court.
2: She was probably drunk on Campari.
1: (laughs) Maybe, but she does remember this time.
2: This is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel.
4: And I'm Renee Montaigne. Today, the staid Supreme Court played host to a legal battle between the moral majority's Jerry Falwell and the self-proclaimed king of porn, Hustler magazine publisher Larry Flint. The battle was fiery. The so picture it. Yet to
1: come. We're in the Reputation Supreme Court chamber, this spread. stately room with 30-foot-high Grecian columns and a curved bench with nine justices looking out at the packed courtroom. And on the one side... In his gold-plated wheelchair and i'm not making that up
2: that was a real thing
1: is larry flint
3: i think that the first amendment gives me the right to be offensive
1: and on the other side the reverend jerry falwell
2: i do not believe for a moment that
5: is what the framers of the first amendment had in mind
2: and in the middle so to speak you have incest bestiality alcohol group sex in an outhouse feces flies what am i forgetting
8: I mean, it's everything disrespectful you can possibly have. And I remember reading the briefs and thinking, this court is full of a bunch of pretty stuffy guys. You know, how are they going to feel about this? Oddly enough, the chief justice, who I had just assumed would find this offensive, thought, I'm told, it was quite funny. (laughs) Turns out he had a kind of a bawdy sense of humor.
2: Well, if you remember, it begins with the interviewer saying, oh, in an outhouse, wasn't it cramped? And Jerry Falwell replies, not after I kicked out the goat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'd forgotten that. So you think <laughs> it's funny, too? Oh, I
8: think it's funny. But, you know, we didn't have a lot of decisions about intentional infliction of emotional distress cases at that point, anyway.
1: In fact, we had no decisions. This is the first time that an intentional infliction of emotional distress case is before the Supreme Court.
2: There is so much going on in those five words. Intentional infliction of emotional distress.
1: There, There's a lot going on.
2: So if you do something to hurt my feelings on purpose, like really hurt my feelings, then I can sue you for damages?
1: Yeah, you can sue. And the way it works generally in our courts is that in order to win, you have to demonstrate that whatever it was that the person did was outrageous. Here again is Rodney Smola, who wrote a book about this case. And he says that outrageous is actually the legal term that was used.
6: Outrageous was defined as beyond anything that an ordinary reasonable person should have to endure in a decent society.
1: So the question the Supreme Court justices will have to answer is, how do we know when speech is so outrageous that it's crossed the line? Take this Jerry Falwell parody. Is it the incest that makes it outrageous?
2: Maybe it's the bestiality. Is it the goat?
1: What if we get rid of the goat?
2: Yeah, what's the rule here? How do we know when speech is suddenly
1: outrageous? You're getting at the job of a Supreme Court justice. It's coming up with a rule for situations just like this. When does speech go too far? Falwell's attorney, Norman Roy Gruttman, argued that Larry Flint can't just publish his smut and then hide behind the First Amendment. Here's Gruttman at the Supreme Court arguing for a sense of decency implicit in the First Amendment.
3: Deliberate, malicious character assassination is not protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. This is not the responsible publisher. This is the wanton, reckless, deliberately malicious publisher who sets out for the sheer perverse joy of simply causing injury to abuse the power that he has as a publisher.
1: Gretman says that this parody
3: constitutes that kind of depiction which would be regarded by the average member of the community as so intolerable that no civilized person should have to bear it.
1: But Justice Antonin Scalia is skeptical of his argument because deliberate, malicious character assassination? Yeah, we call that politics.
7: Mr. Gretman, you've you've given us a lot of words to describe this. Outrageous, heinous, uh, repulsive and loathsome. Repulsive and loathsome. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you haven't looked at the same political cartoons that I have. But some of them, you know, they and and a long tradition of this, not not just in this country, back into into English history. I mean, politicians depicted as horrible-looking beasts. Can you give it something that, uh, that 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 the cartoonist or the political figure can adhere to, other than such general words as heinous and and whatnot? Yes. I mean. Does
3: it depend on how ugly
7: the beast is or or what?
3: It's not the amount of hair the beast has or how long his claws may be. I believe that we have, this is a matter of an evolving social sensibility. It is for the jury to decide whether or not what is being depicted is done in so offensive so awful and so horrible a way that it constitutes the kind of behavior that nobody should have to well, put up with. Well,
4: Mr. Grutman, in today's world, people don't want to have to take these things to a jury.
2: Let me jump in here because I want to make sure I understand what both Scalia and Sandra Day O'Connor are after. They're asking Grutman for a rule of thumb, something to help them figure out where the line is. <laughs> Right. And I don't hear Grutman giving them a rule. In fact, it sounds like Grutman is saying, we don't need a rule. That's what the jury is for. Let the jury decide when it goes too far. And in this case, they already did. Flint owes Falwell $200,000. Let's leave it at that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's Grutman's argument. Leave it to the jury. On the other hand, we've got Larry Flint's attorney, Alan Isaacman.
3: Uh, Mr. Isaacman,
2: you may proceed whenever you're ready.
1: Who says Hustler hasn't come close to crossing the line. Yeah, this parody might be vulgar.
2: Loathsome, repulsive, offensive.
1: (laughs) Right. But Falwell should be able to take it. He spent decades in the public arena arguing for his particular brand of morality. So it's only fair that Hustler gets to fight back. Here's Alan Isaacman. There is a public
9: interest in having Hustler express its view that somebody who's out there campaigning against it, saying don't read our magazine and we're we're poison on the minds of America and don't engage in sex outside of wedlock and don't drink alcohol. Hustler has every right to say that man is full of BS.
2: I am on board with Isaacman. Jerry Falwell was not some wallflower sitting on the sidelines of the culture war. He was a soldier in the fight against pornography. And we have this long, cherished tradition in America of lampooning, sometimes viciously. Our politicians and our religious figures, I say if you're in public life, then you need to get a thick skin or get out.
1: Wow. Well, hold on. You might change your mind on this one. It turns out Justice Scalia played devil's advocate yet again. Here is Scalia pushing back, this time, against Alan Isaacman.
7: Mr. Isaacman, uh, the First Amendment is is not everything. It's, it's a very important value, but it's not the only value in our society, certainly. You're, you're giving us no help. In, in, in trying to balance it, it seems to me, against another value, which is that, that good people should be able to enter public life and public service. The, the rule you give us says that if you stand for public office or become a public figure in any way, you cannot protect yourself or indeed your mother against a parody uh, of, of your committing incest with your mother in an outhouse. Now, is, is is that not a, a value that ought to be protected? Do you think George Washington would have stood for public office if that was the consequence?
9: Somebody who's going into public life. George Washington is an example. There is a cartoon that has uh, George Washington being led on a donkey, and the, underneath the caption is something about so-and-so who was leading the donkey is, is uh, leading this ass, or something to that effect. Uh,
7: now, I can handle that. I think, I think George could handle that. But, but,
9: but this is, that's
7: a... Well, that's, that's a far cry from, from committing incest with your mother in, in, in an outhouse. I mean, it, there, there's, there's no line between the two. We, we, we can't protect that kind of parody and, and not protect this.
9: What you're talking about, Justice Scalia, is a matter of taste. And, and what we're talking about here is, well, is this tasteful or not tasteful? That's really what you're talking about, because nobody believed that Jerry Falwell was being accused of committing incest. You cross the line when you can say something that can be understood as a false statement of fact.
2: You cross the line when you say something that can be understood as a false statement of fact. Right. So Isaacman concedes that, yeah, there is a line, but it's not whether something is outrageous or offensive because that's subjective. Super subjective. The line that Isaacman wants the court to adopt is whether or not it's a lie.
1: Right. And Hustler magazine was joking. There's a difference between a lie and a joke.
2: Yeah, it was even labeled as a parody, and it said not to be taken seriously.
1: They never presented it as a fact that Jerry Falwell had sex with his mother in an outhouse.
2: Nevertheless, I choose to believe it. (laughs)
6: The case is submitted.
1: And the justices retire to decide the fate of the First Amendment. Rod Smola, who, as I mentioned, ended up writing a book about this case. He had actually been hired by a bunch of media organizations to submit written testimony on behalf of Hustler. He argued that if Falwell won, it wasn't just the Larry Flints of the world that would be impacted. This could affect political cartoonists, Saturday Night Live comedians. Mean people everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people assumed that Falwell would win. Because as Nina pointed out, these Supreme Court justices were pretty stuffy. After the oral argument was over, Larry Flint took to the steps of the Supreme Court to speak to the media. It's
3: magazines like Hustler that need protection of the First Amendment, not the Washington Post. We offend a lot more people than the Washington Post do. But I think that the First Amendment gives me the right to be offensive.
1: And there, sticking a microphone in Larry Flint's face, was, of course, Nina Totenberg.
3: Mr. Flint,
8: uh, your opponent in this case said that this is speech that doesn't matter, that it shouldn't be protected because it's speech that doesn't matter.
3: (laughs) To live in a free society, you've got to pay a price, and that price is toleration. You have to tolerate things that you don't necessarily like. So, the lavelants of the world have to be tolerated, and the Falwellians of the world have to be tolerated. And that's what the issue is. My speech is just as important as Jay Farwell's, probably more so.
1: So here we are, back at the original question. Was Larry Flint and Hustler and Terry Abramson, were they too mean?
2: Did they take the joke too far, or does the First Amendment protect them? This is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel.
4: And I'm Renee Montaigne. Today, televangelist Jerry Falwell lost a long standing battle with publisher Larry Flint, who has described himself as a smut peddler. The battle ended with a unanimous decision by the U.S. ruling that
8: the First Amendment guarantee of free speech and press protects cartoons and satires from lawsuits for emotional distress.
2: So Larry Flint won. He's off the hook for that 200 grand, and it was unanimous. There was not a single justice who dissented.
1: Yeah, and remember how the justices were trying to figure out where the line is? Mm -hmm. It turns out Flint's lawyer, Alan Isaacman, had it right. As long as you're not lying, you're free to speak your mind. Here's Rodney Smola.
6: If the only thing that a person can point to is that the insulting speech or the degrading speech hurt my feelings, made me feel bad. The First Amendment protects that speech, no matter how outrageous it is.
8: Well, the opinion makes it really seem quite simple. You know, if you're going to outlaw parody and make publishers of parody pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars or potentially even millions of dollars, you're going to outlaw every kind of satire imaginable, including some of the most famous cartoons in the nation's history and cartoons that changed the course of history.
1: It seems odd today that there was even a question about whether you could lampoon a public figure.
8: I think it's the first time the court actually had to deal with it because... Enough norms of behavior had fallen away that you could actually have a parody about the outrageous sexual behavior of this self-proclaimed paragon of virtue. That his first sexual experience was with his mother and that they were both drunk and in an outhouse. Now, that's hey, not we've s- all
2: been there, Nina. Come on.
8: <laughs> but that is really not something that you could have even imagined, let's say, 20 years earlier, anybody having that kind of a satire in a magazine that was on in stores all over the country. You just couldn't have imagined such a thing.
0: When the Supreme Court ruled 8 to nothing that it was okay to inflict emotional distress on a public figure, then I just thought, man look what I did. I thought about who these guys were and and these guys and Sandra Day, and that one of these guys was Thurgood Marshall, who I revere. The fact that they sat around this table debating the merits and impact and constitutionality of Terry Abramson's dirty joke. It's it's pretty mind-blowing.
1: Unprecedented is produced at WAMU and edited by Ponce Rutsch. Ben Privett is our audio engineer.
2: Andy McDaniel is WAMU's head of content.
1: WAMU's general manager is J.J. Yor.
2: If you like the show, tell a friend, and be sure to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show. It really makes a difference.
1: And if you want more podcasts like Unprecedented, become a member of WAMU. They produce and distribute Unprecedented and other awesome shows.
2: Go to wamu.org slash donate and tell them you're giving because you love Unprecedented. Matt, I do have one more thing.
1: Okay. It's in my bag. Your, your bag of porn?
2: It's not porn. <laughs> I left that at home.
1: Okay. What do we have here?
2: You mentioned that you never tasted Campari. This is
1: true.
2: I'm making you a gingerly. Matthew Schwartz talks about his first time.
1: Oh my god, we're actually doing this?
2: It is the middle of the day.
1: I like a nooner.
2: This is typically when you start your drinking. (laughs) Ginger ale. Ooh, that's a nice fizz. What's the aroma? Oh my god. What's the nose on that? Barnyard?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It smells grassy?
2: Yeah, it does have a kind of earthy smell to it. Here we go. Sipping it, there we go.
1: Oh god, Oh god, this is awful. (laughs) so bad. No, I'm serious. This is the worst thing I've ever tasted.
2: Well, there goes Campari as oh, a sponsor. Oh,
1: god, it's bitter. Oh, I don't think you like it. Oh, it tastes like bath soap. Oh. Why is this a thing? <laughs> it's disgusting. Oh, it's leaving this awful taste in my mouth.
2: Oh, like many a first time.
1: Oh my god, do you want some?
2: No, thank you. Are you sure? Oh, I'm positive. It's really
1: good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm gonna throw up. <laughs>
1: I got it This is done. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Okay.
2: This is really, really off. Awesome. All right. We got a whole bottle of Capari here. <laughs> what are we gonna do with this?